0: graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis and a former surface warfare officer in the U.S. Navy. He was commissioned in May of 2004 and then served on active duty until 2011 when he began pursuit of a career that has taken him around the world in support of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions. John Patterson earned a Bachelor of Science in English in his undergraduate studies and followed up that education with a Master of Arts in Peace and Justice Studies at the Joan B. Crock School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. John served at the Crock School as a research assistant and as an intern at the Geneva Center for Democratic Control of Armed Forces. He's also been a consultant with Mercy Corps and an adjunct professor at the Academy for International Disaster Preparedness at Florida International University. John Patterson currently serves with the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, in the Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. Finally, John co-authored a recent paper, regarding the global financial burden for humanitarian disasters, especially in a time of changing climate. John Patterson, welcome to National Security This Week.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be back
0: in Minnesota, virtually. <laughs> yeah. So you're actually in Budapest, is that right?
1: I am. That's, uh, yeah, that's where I'm based. This is our, uh, our regional office that covers uh, Middle East, Europe, and North Africa.
0: Okay. Well, the power of Zoom, right? We're able to have this uh, video conference and uh, share it with our guests over, over the airwaves.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm yeah, excited to be here.
0: Uh, so, John, let's go ahead and uh, get started. And I'm going to start a little bit with your career path, because I'm curious to know what led you into uh, HADR. You started your professional career in the U.S. Navy as a surface warfare officer. You were trained to conduct okay. war at sea. And you're a product of the U.S. Naval Academy, widely regarded as one of the premier leadership training institutions in our nation how did you transition from the profession of warfare uh to a profession specializing in dare i say compassion
1: ah <laughs> uh, yeah uh, abruptly uh no <laughs> i think uh, <laughs> no i think um well one you know i will say you know i i think compassion is, is a good value for a naval officer to have a, as well though i will grant you maybe not as central to the mission uh, as it is for uh, humanitarian work um but yeah, and you know, I, th- I think on paper, going from uh you know, position where, you know, warfare was literally in my job title to a position now where, you know, humanitarian is in my job title, uh on on paper is a pretty stark transition. And uh you know, I think when I was getting out of the navy, I got some I got some comments, some sideways glances from some of my-, my military colleagues. But uh you know, and, uh, yeah, as they will do. Um but in a broader sense, you know, for me, it was less a transition as more of a, a progression. You know, all the all, all the things that that motivated me as a young man to to join the Navy to to do military service they're they're the same things that that motivate me to do my job today. Um, you know, so those those core values of of who I was and who I wanted to be um, stayed the same. Um, and you know, so when I when I got to um, a point in my career where I knew it was it was probably time for me to transition away from, from the military, um, there's no, no doubt in my mind that I, I wanted to serve in, in some capacity. Um, it was just a question of, of how I was going to do it and, and where I was going to do it. You know?
0: Sure. So, uh, so why don't you tell us a bit about the, the academic training that you completed to prepare yourself for this highly complex, highly fast paced world of uh, disaster relief and humanitarian assistance.
1: Yeah, you know it's interesting. Uh, again, you know when I was when I was getting set to transition, I didn't I didn't necessarily have a super clear idea of of, of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. You know, I had a, some kind of broad outlines and ideas. You know, I knew I wanted to I knew I wanted to work in the international space. Uh, I knew I wanted to, you know to continue to serve, as I mentioned, in some capacity. Um, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, I didn't have in my mind, hey, I want to, I want to go into humanitarian assistance, and so I should study, you know, X, Y, and Z.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was more, it was more kind of looking at at where I was, you know, looking at at the tools that I that I felt that I had already, um, looking at you know where I thought I had gaps in in my knowledge, in my worldview, in, in ways in which I could, you know, kind of fill those fill those gaps, and. You know, so I didn't necessarily have a real solid plan, but in retrospect, um, as I look back, you know, I'm I'm constantly amazed at, at how useful my academic training has been and my military training. Um, you know, at the you mentioned at the Naval Academy, I studied English literature, um, which again maybe wouldn't seem like it's immediately applicable, but <laughs> at the heart of it, yeah, you know the you know the study of literature is is the study of uh, the human experience. It's you yeah, know it's it's what true. what motivates. Yeah, it's, it's It's about what motivates people and and understanding that when you're trying to kind of analyze what the what's driving humanitarian needs in a particular context is is proven to be really useful um, and you know just the kind of the concrete skills of reading and writing um, that's you know you know to a certain extent we all kind of know how to do that but but the the literature education you know really learning how to express yourself in the written word learning how other people are expressing themselves and, and being able to you know kind of draw core messages and meanings um was is, is really useful and it opens up a lot of doors you know i'm i am not a, a mathematician uh, naturally um but when i got to you know when i started doing my master's i ended up focusing a lot on economics and econometrics mm-hmm. and you know i was able to Read enough about math and enough about statistics and, and how to do it that I you know I could kind of hold my own and, and, and there again, you know, the, the study of economics and what's driving local economies and what you know, impacts outside influences have on local economies um, is again really important to understand as I go about kind of my daily work in the humanitarian world, understanding again what's, what's driving humanitarian needs at the ground level and you know, what potential impacts of assistance. Could be from the outside to make sure that you know any assistance we're providing isn't actually you know, creating problems within the local economy. So, so that was really useful. Um, and then again, you know the the military experience it, it provides so many lessons, and I constantly kind of find myself drawing from those experiences. And yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, I think responding to disasters, um, especially. Especially in the in the first days and weeks after a rapid onset disaster like a hurricane or an earthquake, I have found to be actually a lot like a lot like driving a ship in mm-hmm. many ways. I think.
0: Yeah, and and I would say that uh, in the U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard, uh, a core part of the mission set uh, for the naval services has become humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Uh, so, my, my my guess is is that while you were still on active duty, you were you were probably being exposed to the thought process of how does the military respond to those things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, my first experience with um, a disaster response was uh, the the earthquake in Japan two thousand eleven Operation Tomodachi. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was in Hawaii at the time, but I was deployed to Japan um, shortly after, uh, and that was that was actually my first response was was when I was still in uniform.
0: All right. So, uh, I said in the, uh, in, in, your intro that, uh, you attended the Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego, and that school seems to have had a kind of a profound impact on your understanding of HADR and the role that you'd like to play. I mean, is that a fair statement?
1: Oh, absolutely. So, uh, so what, you know,
0: my... what did you learn at that institution? Why don't you, why don't you fill us in on that?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I think, um, well, so many things. And my experience there was, was really transformational in a lot of ways, um, you know, from, from kind of the basics, it was, again, I was coming out of the military, and, and so, you know, I had a lot of great experiences and I got great lessons, but I didn't have the exposure to, you know, the international humanitarian structures, the, the infrastructure, the architecture that goes along with that, um, and I definitely kind of got the basics of what that looks like in terms of, you know, NGOs, UN agencies, who the major players were, kind of the basics of how they were structured and how they interacted, and mm-hmm. um, so all of those those were key, and then you know just kind of some the basics of a of a an education in peace and justice um, was, it really kind of changed the way I viewed things. You know, we ended up studying a lot of the same things that you would study at you know at a sice or at a Humphrey School, right? Um, but you do it, yeah. But, but you do it from a you know a very different lens of kind of putting you know peace and justice as at the center of it, mm-hmm. um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's important. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is John Patterson, and we're discussing international humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Uh, So, John, you caught on with the USAID and the Support Relief Group, or, or the SRG, after graduate school, and you served as a civil military affairs officer advising the U.S. military on HADR operations. Where did where did they send you in that capacity, and what did you learn about the HADR mission from those early experiences?
1: Yeah, you know, again, great ironies in my life. You know, I made this, I made the choice to kind of purposely uh, shift away from 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 the military and maybe had a different direction and. You know, I immediately was thrown right back into it and was probably uh, more entrenched with the military structure than, than, than when I was actually in uniform.
0: Um,
1: but when, when, when I started out, I was, uh, I was doing kind of going around, uh, I was doing a lot of teaching. Well, we at USAID has a, a course called the Joint Humanitarian Operations Course, which we offer to uh, military personnel and units who could potentially be called upon to support a disaster response overseas. So I was going to you know exotic locations like Fort Hood uh, to uh, (laughs) Lubbock, Texas, San Antonio, Tucson. I spent a lot of time in all the places that I thought I would be going to when I joined USAID, right? Right. Um, Yeah, but um, and you know I I remember actually I was I was teaching a course at Fort Leavenworth with with a colleague of mine, and I was kind of complaining about the fact that I hadn't been able to get in the mix and. and uh, the next week, uh, Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines, right. and I was—I was actually at home. Yeah, I was, and I was sitting at home in Minnesota, and and I got the call. They said, "Hey, we'd we'd like you to go out and support the response." And I was super excited. I said, like, "Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready to go. I just I just need a little time to get ready." And, and they said, "Yeah, don't worry. Your your flight doesn't leave till tonight." <laughs> um, so, <laughs> uh, and then you know, twelve hours later, or however long it takes to get from uh, MSP to Manila. I was I was there in, in the thick of it.
0: All right. So then you took a position as the humanitarian advisor to U.S. Southern Command in Miami, followed by an expanded role as the humanitarian assistance advisor to the military for both U.S. Southern Command and U.S. Northern Command. Uh, but you also had worldwide assignments uh, during that time as well. And then finally, you became the country team leader for Colombia. And now you're a regional advisor in Eastern Europe, headquartered there in, in Budapest. At uh, what during that time frame? What missions most impacted you personally, due to what you saw or experienced in in those overseas responses?
1: Uh, yeah, you know it's hard to. Yeah, it's been it's been great. You know, some, from that first kind of experience in the Philippines, I've been I was in Liberia for the Ebola response. I've uh, been to Haiti a couple of different times, most notably in 2016 for Hurricane Matthew. Uh, earthquakes in Albania, complex emergencies, uh, conflict related stuff around the world. Uh, currently now covering you know Israel and West Bank Gaza, so getting to, to travel to Jerusalem a lot for that. Um, and they're all, you know, they're all unique. You learn something new every time, I think. Um, I'd say, you know, one of the things that, that impacts me consistently, I think, is that we kind of look at this world of international humanitarian assistance as this kind of international, very cosmopolitan, I don't know, glamorous isn't the right word. But, but you know, that's kind of the, it's certainly what I kind of thought of it when, when I started. And then when you get on the ground, when it's, you know, the saying, you know, all politics are local. And, right. and, and it is, yeah. And, you know, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Armenia, you know, checking in on our programs that we put in place following the war in Nagorno-Karabakh a few months ago. Right. And yeah, you know, when I'm there, I'm meeting with local mayors, I'm meeting with you know the local population. They're they're you know small scale farmers, they're educators, they're healthcare workers, and they've got all the same kind of concerns and, and issues that that we all do. And and it's it, it's funny to me as as I travel more and more, just how local things really are.
0: Yeah, and, and how much, regardless of where you are in the world, as human beings, we are all concerned about the very same things. Regardless of it's our am- culture, our language, uh, religion, it, it all boils down to uh, kind of the basics of human life, right?
1: It is amazing, you know. He, you know, we are we are consistent. You got to give us that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, what motivates you to work for an organization with a mission to assist nations around the world, and that would be USAID? What motivates you to work for USAID?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's. Um, you know, it's something I, you know, I kind of, in some ways, I stumbled into it. You know, again, I didn't have a plan to to be a humanitarian. <laughs> I didn't know a ton. Yeah, I didn't know a ton about USAID when I was when I was in the military. Um, but I'm so glad that I have the the mission set. It's it's so unique. It's one that I don't think a lot of Americans are aware of. But in this capacity, you know, I get to continue to serve my nation. And, and in a way that I think represents the, the best instincts of, of who we are as, as a nation and who we are as a people. It's, you know, which is not to say that, um, you know, humanitarianism isn't exclusively American ideal. Obviously there's right. nations around the world that, that yep. do it, right? Yep. Um, but it is integral and to who we are. And if you look back at our history, you know, it, it's been there from the beginning. I think our first disaster response was 1812, the Venezuela uh, earthquake. You look back at the the work that uh, we've done in food assistance, actually Minnesota Connection. You know, Humphrey was integral in putting together the legislation that um, kind of you know set out how we provide food assistance around the world. Um, and and it is it, it's it's part of who we are. And so, and and we and today, you know, we're playing a lead role in that. You know, you, you look at the the nations that provide humanitarian assistance. You know, the U.S. government is consistently at the top or, or the top of the humanitarian donors internationally. And so to be able to, you know, play a part, be be a part of those conversations and, and you know, play some small part in how we put together our assistance, influence how other nations put together their assistance, it's, you know, it's, it, it's pretty motivating. I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think every every job at some point becomes a job. I'm sure, you know, even... <laughs> Raphael, and yeah you know even <laughs> yeah. even Rafael Nadal I'm sure wakes up and is like I don't I don't want to play tennis today yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> but but I think you know every every little thing that you do is kind of building towards a bigger purpose and and so for me going into the office every day and you know the reality is most days I, I'm I'm answering emails and all that but but knowing that that's all working towards um, you know hopefully playing some small. Part in in alleviating the suffering of, of of people around the world. That that's pretty motivating.
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm going to tie this uh, back to sort of the the core ideas of what this show is about. This national security this week show, and and that's sort of the impact of the tools of national power and how the United States uses those tools of national power. And, and I'll I'll remind the audience that the tools are often referred to as dime diplomacy, the power of information. Uh, the military and the power of uh, of economics so so dime is is uh, describes that very very quickly and uh, so John Patterson, would you say that uh, the amount of assistance that we provide countries around the world through USAid for both disaster relief and long term humanitarian assistance uh, that that is a soft power element of uh, of dime the tools of uh, of national power. And time we do that, and we assist uh, peoples around the world that that actually long term has a very positive impact for our relationship between the United states and, and uh, the global south or developing nations or even developed nations that have suffered a, a major national disaster would you say that that's true
1: oh yeah i, I mean i think uh, yeah absolutely the 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 work that we do and, and you know and, and you know you can look at it um, you know the the overall you know, budget of of the U.S. government. You know, less than one percent of that goes to foreign assistance. What we call foreign assistance, and yeah, and that's a, a you know a an tiny umbrella amount. term that yeah, right. It's a tiny yeah. Amount. That can be yeah. It could be you know foreign military sales, like you know everything to humanitarian assistance. So, and then the humanitarian piece of that is you know is is even smaller. Um, but it's again, I think it's a way for us to. You know, a way for us to demonstrate American values that, you know, that kind of put some serious resources behind those values um, and and to live them out. And and yeah, I mean, it does it does have a huge impact. You look at the things that we've done, like I said, with food assistance that Mm -hmm. um, has both uh, alleviated suffering around the world. And also, you know, a lot of that um, ties back to to certain parts of the the U.S. market as well that that, you know, uh, provides benefits to both sides. And you can you can be cynical about that if you want, but but you can also face the reality is that you know there's baked into that and baked into the legislation and baked into the appropriations behind that legislation is the idea that you know providing assistance to people who are suffering around the world, we believe to be in our best interest as a nation.
0: Yeah. Uh so for our audience you're listening to KYMN radio AM ten eighty and fm ninety five point one. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is John Patterson. He works for USAID, and we're discussing international humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Okay, so John Patterson, we had Art De La Cruz on the show last week. He's going to take over as the CEO of Team Rubicon tomorrow. Uh, Team Rubicon works predominantly in the U.S. to assist communities recovering from natural disasters. And I had asked Art to step us through the process of how Team Rubicon responds to a natural disaster. Uh, your experiences in the international arena, when a natural disaster happens around the world, how does USAID respond, and what role does USAID AID play in ameliorating the impacts of of those disasters?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so USAID is uh, what we call the the lead federal coordinator or lead federal agency LFA for providing U.S. government humanitarian assistance overseas. The way we go about it, uh, a few different ways. Uh, so number one, you know, we, have, we have people and resources stationed uh, all over the world. So we have p- permanent uh, folks uh, placed in, I think, a little over 45 countries around the world. So those are you know, people like me sitting here in Budapest. We have a certain you know, pocket of the world that we monitor and we're constantly watching that. We're watching storms as they develop, we're watching you know, potential conflict hotspots, any, anything that you know, could potentially create humanitarian need. We have a team of people All over the world who are who are watching those you know those situations long before they make it on CNN and uh, you know as we watch those develop we're in constant conversation with you know with the ambassadors in those countries with our USAID mission colleagues and other parts of the U.S. government and and when it gets to uh, you know a critical point where it's the decision is made that um, U.S. government humanitarian assistance is warranted. Um, we have a few different options. We have uh, in-house technical experts. So these are people who are leaders in the field of, you know, emergency shelter, leaders in the field of water sanitation and hygiene or uh, humanitarian protection. These, these issues that we could deploy uh, to work with our partners to set up programs. Uh, We do also maintain some of our own warehouses of uh, some commodities around the world that we can deploy if needed. Um, Our first option there is always going to be to to buy local if we can, um, Mm -hmm. so we can work with our partners to get them funds so they can buy the supplies that they need on the local economy, which is is always preferable. It's going to be faster, cheaper, and have the added benefit of injecting some cash into that local economy and helping the recovery efforts that way. Right. Um, but. Yeah, but we do have those warehouses, which we can draw on if that's not possible. Um, and then, yeah, we can, you know, if, it, if it's big, um, we could deploy what we call a disaster assistance response team or a DART. Uh, and that would be a team of uh, USAID professionals who are on the ground to coordinate the U.S. government's response. So both, you know, putting together the USAID response, but then also... Working with interagency colleagues like the Department of Defense that we would call in to support as necessary.
0: Okay, Uh, and and then for so that's for a disaster relief, so some sort of natural disaster like a major storm, uh, tremendous flooding, earthquake, that kind of thing. Uh, How about for long-term humanitarian assistance missions, uh, you know, famine, that kind of thing? What role does USAID play, and how do leaders at USAID determine? Uh, where they will respond to these long-term crises around the world?
1: Yeah, so there again, uh, you know, we uh, we respond to disasters of all kinds. So whether they're natural disasters or you know uh, humanitarian needs brought on by incidents of conflict, so you know we we continue to monitor. We still have all those same tools available to us um, to to deploy as necessary. But yeah, the longer-term ones, it, it's interesting. Even you know, I started with. Uh, USAID in 2013, and this is something, you know, since then we've seen these long-term conflicts uh, and long-term responses in places like Syria, and places like Yemen, and places like Iraq, um, which is a slightly different model for us. And, and it becomes less kind of the, the uh, you know, immediate response, send a team out the door and get on the ground real quick. And it becomes more, you know, not predictable, but, you know, we, we kind of go through a yearly cycle where we monitor the changing needs um, we determine whether or not the um, response is still necessary, mm-hmm. and then um, you know we we make a determination. And, and it's you know so you know the way we kind of do it is someone like me in my position, I will advocate for the countries in my portfolio and say you know based on the data, here's what I think the needs are. Here's here's what what I think we should be spending, and then you know it's going to go up to the leadership who's going to have to make global decisions, and, and and they're tough decisions. There's there's no good answers right. you know, on, right. on how to yeah, but um, but we do have a process, and as much as possible, we, we we try and base it in you know, good, solid data, which can be hard to get uh, in some of these instances, but, but we aim for that for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I have to imagine that uh, there are some of those uh, either disaster relief responses or even long-term humanitarian assistance challenges where the security situation is such that it's a very difficult decision for senior leaders to make to say, yeah, we're going to go ahead and send – americans into potentially into harm's way uh to help with these situations
1: yeah it's 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 really tough and it's not just us right i mean this is this is a, a, an issue that is facing the international humanitarian community writ large and mm-hmm. you know how do you how do you properly respond um in areas where you don't have a lot of access and and it is it's the you know, it, it's a gray area and you constantly have to be on top of it. You constantly have to be measuring the the pros and cons of, of you know, how confident you are that you're going to be able to get the assistance to where it needs to be. Um, and, you know, what, what the trade-off is, you know, because if you, if you cut off all assistance, then, then that's obviously not ideal. You want to, you want to be able to get something in um, and they're, they're very, very hard decisions that we have to make in those cases yeah
0: uh, let, let's let's uh, go back to disaster r- response uh, disaster disaster relief response. Uh, what is a civil military operations center or, or a CMAC a CMOC? Uh, how do they function to maximize the impact of uh, governments, NGOs and, and even military forces, host nation or other uh, as they respond to a natural disaster, sort of a, a mechanics uh, uh, of coordination on the ground. Can you tell us a little bit about a CMOC?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, you know, I've, I've been in the government long enough and, and in the agent, interagency long enough to know that acronyms are, are a dangerous game.
0: Yes, they are. We can, uh, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And of course, we all have, you know, different acronyms for the same thing and the same acronym for a different thing. Um, but my understanding, uh, the CMOC uh, is uh, is a tool that, um, you know, it comes from military, U.S. military doctrine. Uh, and, it, and it's a tool that a joint task force commander uh, has at their disposal to kind of organize, organize within them uh, the any requests they get from the lead federal agency to to execute in support of a humanitarian operation. So, you know, so as I mentioned, you know, USAID will occasionally um, request DoD to support. Um, so we'll we'll come in. We'll, we'll provide specific asks to whatever that element is whether it's most often for logistics and, and and the CMOC allows that military commander to kind of organize um, you know her or his uh, units in order to execute those those requests. Now there's there's another so that's kind of internal um, you know U.S. military and U.S. government and how we, we organize that military relationship. Externally, there is uh, something that the the international humanitarian community uses called a cluster system okay which yeah I know you and I both know clusters only half a word um, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> it's, it's poorly it's poorly named I'll grant you that but it is it's pretty effective and if it, it came out of uh, the uh, the tsunami of 2004 2005 where there was a very big international response, and, and it became pretty clear that, that there was a, it was a need to better organize it. And, and essentially what the UN cluster system does is it breaks a response into different sectors called uh, clusters, whether it's food security or shelter or water sanitation and hygiene. And at the head of each of these clusters is, is a lead element, usually from the UN or from, from an NGO, and a co-lead from the host nation. Uh, and then basically every anybody and everybody an NGO um, who who is involved in say shelter will go to these meetings and it 's an opportunity for them to to coordinate and deconflict in both geography and skill sets. So that the international community can can make sure that we're making the most of the resources on the ground.
0: Okay, and, and we'll, we'll reiterate because we're, <laughs> we're just talking about acronyms. <laughs> NGOs is short for non governmental oh. organizations, volunteer organizations yes. that show up with uh, food or or medicines or, or those kinds of things. Uh, so let's, exactly. let's let's move on, if we could, uh, John. I wanted to ask you about the paper that you recently uh, co authored, which I mentioned in the opening. Uh, what drove you to research and write that paper, and and what were your findings?
1: Yeah, you know it's, it's it's interesting. So you know, the biggest thing we do, you know, and I talk about our different um, response options at USAID. You know, our, our our most often used one is is providing funding to uh, NGOs or implementing partners, UN agencies on the ground actually doing it. So so in a lot of ways, you know, I'm, I'm at a position where I'm you know I'm I'm kind of investing in other people's programs, and and to be a good investor, I wanted to have a better understanding of the the overall market. And uh, within the the international humanitarian system, the UN runs a thing called the Financial Tracking System, or FTS. And that's where most uh, international donors like USAID will report, you know, how much we've given and, you know, to who and, and for what disasters. And it's a voluntary reporting mechanism, so it's not perfect, but it does capture a pretty good chunk of the international spending. But what is missing is, you know, most countries don't, report what they're spending on their own disasters. And oh, so it, this was a huge, yeah. And it was, it was kind of bothering me that, you know, I was asking around and, and, and nobody could, nobody could tell me, you know, how to do that. Um, and so I took it to a friend of mine from the university of San Diego, who we'd worked together on a previous paper, uh, professor Tover McDougall, who's a, a trained economist and, and a very good one. I presented this problem and we thought through it and we, we found a way um, by using um, you know, different statistical models that that we could estimate what that figure is. And so what we found was that while, you know, most of us talk about the international humanitarian budget as about 22 to 30 billion dollars a year, and that's based off of that reporting from FTS, in reality, it's probably 13 times that, so almost 400 billion. Wow. Um, which, yeah, which I think is important, right? We're talking orders of magnitude bigger. And, and so I think understanding that is a little bit better. And then, you know, we then wanted to try, tie that a little bit to, to climate change and see what the impacts of, of that were. Um, and there again, we found some pretty interesting that, you know, if, if the global temperatures were to increase by one degree, which they are scheduled to do in about 15 years, that would actually take that price tag up to $1 trillion a year just for disaster response. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's yeah, massive. That is that is not good. That is not good. Uh, so, so John Patterson, we're, we're kind of getting closer to the end of our program, and I want to ask you the same question that I asked of Art De La Cruz uh, last week, uh, and that is, should the U.S. military create a career path A dedicated career path for officers who specialize in the HADR mission. Uh, Why or why not?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. Actually, Uh, you probably never asked me to come back. Uh, But (laughs) uh, uh, no, I think so. But no, for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, uh, so USAID, the U.S. government, responds to probably about 75 disasters on average every year. Okay. Of those. Yeah, of those, the U.S. military is involved. You know, in p- less than ten, sometimes less than five percent of them. Okay. So they're we, you know, they're generally the big ones. So they're the ones that we see on you know CNN and all of that. But but in reality, it's a small percentage. The other piece is that uh, when we do ask for the DOD to support us, um, what we need from them is is the things that they're already good at. You know, we need uh, logistics. We mm-hmm. need logistics. We need to be able to you know, you know, project that logistical power forward into very uncertain and difficult uh, operating environments. And that's something that uh, the US military is, is already probably the best in the world at. And, and you know, it's obviously it'd be, it's, it's ideal when, when the, the officers and the enlisted who show up in these missions have some kind of sense of how the international humanitarian community operates. Um, But then, you know, we have a a cadre, a a large team of folks who who do the job that I used to do at Southcom and Northcom and kind of act as that intermediary or that translator between the military and the humanitarian uh, community. So, you know, I think I think we've we've got that piece there in place already.
0: Okay. Uh, so John Patterson, last question, uh, and I'll give you Mm -hmm. the floor. Uh, what else should our listeners know about USAID, the people who work there, and the missions USAID performs in support of uh, long-term American national security interests? The floor is yours, sir.
1: Oh, man. I think, well, you know, as I mentioned that, you know, that it's it's a piece of U.S. government, a piece of U.S. foreign policy that I, I think not a lot of people know a ton about. I, I certainly didn't. And I think, you know, the people the people that I've worked with the last eight years within USAID, I'm constantly in awe of them. These are amazing, dedicated professionals, as dedicated as anybody I worked with when I was in in uniform. They're knowledgeable, they're leaders in their field. Um, these are great people that are out there, you know, representing the American people in very difficult situations and doing doing great work. And I think it's it's something that, you know, we can, we can all be proud of, regardless of where you, where you stand uh, on the political spectrum. This is a piece of American foreign policy that I think everybody can, can be proud of. And, you know, I think of a, a story I, I tell sometimes about my, my grandfather. He was, uh, he was a Naval Academy graduate, class of 44. Uh, so he actually graduated in 43, so they were all accelerated. And uh, after graduation, he was in the he was in the Pacific Theater right away. Several years later, uh, several decades later, as a young naval officer, I had the opportunity to to bring him on board for, for a Tiger Cruise, which you, John, are probably familiar with. Yep, but yep. for your list, yeah, for your listeners, um, essentially, I was coming back from deployment, and you get an opportunity to invite family members uh, to ride on the ship for a few days. So we were we were coming back from. Actually, I can't remember where. I think the Philippines or somewhere up that way. We stopped in Hawaii. My grandfather met the ship in Hawaii in Pearl Harbor and the ship that was next to us was a Japanese destroyer. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't think anything of it, but for my grandfather to, to be back at Pearl Harbor, to be sitting there and his grandson's ship is docked next to a Japanese warship, um, to me, has always been a reminder that, you know, the things that connect us as humans are going to be far more enduring than the politics of the day. And, and so, you know, a, a, little, a little investment in humanity, a little investment in kindness, like we do at USAID and BHA, I think, I think that's money well spent.
0: Yeah, well said, well said. Uh, so, John Patterson, nice. we, we've come to the end of our show. Uh, thank you for joining us today on National Security this week. I, I think between you and Art De La Cruz, I'm certain our listeners have a comprehensive understanding of the role of both governments and non-governmental organizations or NGOs in responding to the HADR mission. Uh, so, so, John Patterson, what's next on your travel uh, agenda? Where are you headed next?
1: Uh, well, we'll see. You know, COVID has thrown a wrench into it, but I think uh, the, the plan is to hopefully get back to Jerusalem for a little bit, check in on those programs, and then maybe kind of take a tour of our programs in the Caucasus and the Balkans uh, before the end of the year if I can.
0: All right. That's the plan. Well, John Patterson, keep up the great work. Uh, I appreciate you ha- having you out there on the front lines and continuing to serve our country. Uh, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. We'll be talking about Russia next week, so make sure you tune in to KYM and Radio at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody, and a fantastic uh, Fourth of July weekend as well. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Whether your family drives cars, light trucks, SUVs, or all three, Whit Brothers Service is with